This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly. Ben-Hur. Space Monkey. Mafia. Hula Hoop. Castro. Castro. Big Bid. Big man. Cuba. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's a number one song and a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru, it's Billy Joel. Our mission is to feed our heads and our pledge is that together we will learn without ever really feeling like we're learning at all. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Casey, shall we toast our lobes around the fire once more? Yeah, why not? So usually at this point we speculate wildly on our yes. topic, which today is Fidel Castro. Today I'd like to change it up, Katie, and oh? play Fidel Castro word association. So we're not going to overthink <gasps> this. We're just going to bat this to and fro. Katie. I never overthink anyway, so I think you're giving me way too much credit for my research. Yes, go ahead. Katie, shoot, you go first. Uh, beard. Fatigues. Uh, bogeyman to Americans. <laughs> Exploding cigar. Mystique. Long speeches. Cool branding. (laughs) (laughs) We could go on for a while here, Katie, but we need to speak to someone who knows more than we do. Are you cutting me off at the pass? (laughs) Let me just share something. I'm forcing a a shareable moment on all of you, which is growing up in America in the late 60s and early 70s as a young child, I didn't know anything about Fidel Castro, and clearly I still don't, uh, judging from my very lame word association responses. However, I can tell you that it was impressed upon me, even as a young that he was a really bad guy because he was communist. I totally ate and bought and ingested the propaganda. I just knew instinctively that communism was bad and that he was obviously terrifying because he lived really close to Florida, 90 miles to be exact, off the coast of Florida. So um, I'm willing to accept that maybe he wasn't the bogeyman I was forced to believe he was. Well, that's interesting because I think in Britain, because we weren't 90 miles from Havana, we had a a rather different feeling about him. He was basically, he was a rock and roll revolutionary, wasn't he? Of all the world leaders that you saw when you were a kid growing up in Britain in the 70s and 80s, he was by far the coolest. He was probably, I would say, in rock and roll terms, the lead guitarist to Che Guevara's front man. Is that fair? Yeah, that's probably probably right. And also, a little bit like the early Beatles, he did did have a uniform that he wore, <laughs> he which did. was literally the fatigues and the combat boots, and then uh, accessorized by the cigar. Yeah. So he was a, a very cool guy. Um, however, uh, we can spitball on this for hours, and indeed, we would love to inflict that upon you, but we won't, because we have an actual Cuba expert here with us today. He is Dr. Stephen Wilkinson. He is director of the International Institute for the Study of Cuba at the University of Buckingham. And I'm reliably informed that I can refer to you as Steve. Correct. So 30-odd years you've had 
a long relationship with Cuba. What was your initial connection to the country? Well, actually, it goes a bit further than that because I became interested in Cuba as an undergraduate student in around 1978. And I was doing a course called American Studies. <laughs> and we had a left-wing lecturer who talked about American imperialism. And in one of his courses, I learned about this tiny country that stood up to the United States, went eyeball to eyeball and didn't blink sort of thing. And I became really fascinated by it. So basically, that has been a kind of an obsession with me ever since I was like, 20 years old. So. And Castro, of course, is a unique figure among world leaders in that he is the longest serving non-royal head of state in the 20th and 21st centuries. And I mean, all the more remarkable given the volatility of the Cold War era and the challenges to responding to changing regimes elsewhere in the world and the hostile behemoth of the U.S. hulking just 90 miles away from his tiny island. Can you talk just a little bit about his character? Like, what was it that made him go eyeball to eyeball so successfully? Well, I, I mean, you have to kind of see Castro within a long tradition of independence fighters in Cuba. Mm. So he was inspired principally by a guy from the 19th century, Jose Marti, who is really Cuba's independence hero. And Marti had a vision for, the, for an independent Cuba that would be sovereign and free, and particularly free of the United States. Of course, that didn't happen. After independence, uh, it became basically a neo-colony of the United States. And politics was very corrupted. And so Castro grew up in a milieu of frustrated young people that wanted to kind of restore this vision of Cuba that Jose Marti had. The best way to understand Castro is not as a communist, but as a nationalist, really. In his formative years, Steve, I find lots of contradictions. So I don't know if you can help steer us through this. So he is quite a radical student. He, he marries young to a very middle-class woman. He seems to spend three months on honeymoon in New York City, which doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. But you see, he comes from a kind of class background that is obviously not working class, but it's also not absolutely upper class. His father was like a self-made man who got some land in a part of Cuba, in the eastern part of Cuba, that wasn't very well cultivated. And so he was fortunate enough to get in on the back of a um, massive expansion of American interest. And so suddenly his father became a very wealthy planter. So he was a kind of nouveau riche figure. Obviously had enough money to pay for his sons to get a very good education, the kind of equivalent of, you know, buying into it like we do in Britain, you know, or in the States, Ivy League, Oxford, Cambridge. He kind of was able to get his sons into those kinds of uh, schools. So Castro was out of a background that was kind of new money. And then he was moving in a milieu, in, in, a, in an environment in Havana, where he was amongst children from a very much more established, older, upper-class background. So he, he actually married into, he married up, in a sense, into the upper class. It's funny because it's almost uh, marrying against his principles, perhaps. The thing is, you've got to remember that at this time, Castro isn't particularly communist, Mm. He's, he's, he's into this guy, Marti. Now, Marti did have a social conscience, so he wasn't actually going against his principles at all. But he was very involved in politics. He was involved in student politics, and he did want to 
change Cuba for the better. He didn't necessarily at that time want to carry out a revolution. In fact, he took part in standard politics. Uh, he was a candidate in the elections of 1952 for Congress. And I'm wondering about the dynamic between him and his brother Raul, because they were there must have been a little bit of sibling rivalry. And certainly politically, they had different strands that they were following. Raul was younger than Fidel. And Fidel had this older brother role with Raul. Um, they were together in school, and Fidel would look after Raul. Raul was kind of diminutive. Fidel was very tall. And so he would kind of make sure that the other kids didn't pick on his little brother. There wasn't very much rivalry at all. Raul was always very, very close to Fidel, and the two of them worked together extremely closely throughout their lives. It sounds like... They were different characters, but their characters, Steve, meshed and helped each other out in that Raoul is maybe the super organised one and the big brother is the ideas man. You got it. Your research is fantastic, guys, I've got to say. Hey. You know, everybody talks about, you know, if you read the, you know, uh, I can mention some academics that uh, write about this. Anthony, Anthony Capsia from Nottingham University is like the doyen of Cuban history of this revolutionary period. And he talks a lot about the way in which Raul is much more the kind of organisation guy. The guy that can run organizations, because he was head of the army and he managed the army. And so he was the guy that worked with institutions and so on, whereas Fidel was the much more charismatic, inspirational leader that inspired a different kind of followership. Give us an idea, Steve, of Cuba in the 1950s, that these two brothers are growing up and starting to get their political beliefs together, because it sounds a particularly cruel place. Well, it's <laughs> actually, I'm getting a flavour living in the kind of, uh, towards the end of the Johnson premiership of the kind of atmosphere that Cuba had at the time. It was ex a government that was extremely corrupt in which ministers were, you know, using their office to make themselves rich by giving themselves contracts to do things for the government. Sounds familiar, right? But that yep. kind of thing was going on on a massive scale and had been going on on a huge scale in Cuba for very many years. In other words, the place had descended into a, into corruption. I'm also curious about, was there uh, interference, intervention and opportunistic activities coming from America? I'm thinking about perhaps the mafia, which we uh, got into a few episodes ago. Yeah. So what you have to kind of understand is this is... This period in, you know, United States history when you have that very kind of straight-laced kind of 50s America where, you know, you've got homophobia, ban on gambling, quite a, uh, a sort of a constrained sort of lifestyle, you know. Puritanical. Very, yeah, puritanical, you know. And so what you had in Cuba was a place where people could go and let their hair down. Mm. And so the mafia moved in to Cuba in a big way, built, built hotels with gambling casinos, and they were actually serving the U.S. market. Um, and so people would go down to Havana to have, they would do weekends, you know, they would sort of go down there and basically anything you wanted could be had. So Hedonistic pleasures. Sex, drugs, the lot, right? Yeah. So Havana was a kind of playground, 
And this also was something that upset people, and even people in the upper classes in Cuba who very often were quite pious and religious. But I'm talking now about really the period after Batista takes power. Batista takes power in a coup d'etat in 52. This is a really important point to understand where Castro comes from. You see, in the 1940s, politics had already become corrupted. Now, there was a political party um, that was running the country, which was called the Authentic Followers of Jose Marti. That was the name of the party. Short good name, isn't it? <laughs> the Authenticos, the Authentics. But of course, the Authentics had become so corrupted that they were no longer really following Jose Marti. So a guy comes along who comes from the upper classes himself, wealthy guy, a man called Eduardo Chibas. And Chibas, like you guys, has a radio show. And he gets really fed up with the corruption in politics and he he founds a new party and he calls his party the orthodox followers of Jose Marti, (laughs) los ortodoxos. And his whole thing is, and his, his campaign slogan in Spanish is vergüenza contra dinero. Uh, which means basically dignity before money, right? Pride before money, something like that. So this slogan is very popular, and he uses his radio show to get a lot of followers, and this party grows in popularity, and it becomes like the main challenger for the authentic party. And, of course, it's got a platform to clean up politics, to redistribute wealth, etc., etc., etc. Castro is a member of this party and stands in the election as a candidate for Congress as a member of the Orthodox Party. Chibas libels a guy on the radio and he's facing a libel suit, so he makes an impassioned plea on the radio that um, this is my last speech I'm going to make to you, Cuban people, you've got to rise up and overthrow this corruption. And then he goes out of the studio and shoots himself, <gasps> right? And the muffled shot is heard on the radio. Oh. Right? <laughs> we might be doing that broadcast, <laughs> broadcasting gold there, and people. This guy, but the thing is about this guy is he shoots himself in the stomach. So oh. the historians say he didn't really mean to kill himself. He just did this dramatically. But anyway, he goes to hospital and he, he lasts for 11 days or oh. so and dies in hospital. What a His way wounds to go. Doesn't, doesn't get better. But of course, this huge sacrifice that he makes catapults the party to the absolute heights of popularity. So it's going to win the election. So in order to stop the Orthodox party winning, Batista takes over in a military coup to prevent the victory of the Orthodox. So Castro is frustrated in his bid to get into political office. And he's also then horrified by the fact that Cuba descends into a tyranny. And so that's why he decides to start to take up arms against him. There's a little interregnum where he tries to sue Batista for breaking the constitution. And of course, that gets thrown out by the Supreme Court. Yeah, he, go, he goes all white collar and then he just goes, no, I'm going to go street. I'm going to go. Yeah, guns, urban, well, ugly. Well, what's really clever about that is that he's a lawyer. So what he does is he tries a legal route yes. to get rid of the tyrant. And then he gives himself a legal defense right. for using weapons to get rid of the tyrant. Because under the just war defense, he has cause, which which makes it legal that he should 
carry out an uprising. So he goes down the path of becoming a revolutionary. How come he gets thrown into prison? What happens? So the first thing he does is he tries to organize um, an uprising. And actually, he repeats something that Marti himself had tried, which is to attack a garrison in the east. Most of the revolutions started in the eastern part of the island. All the revolutions in Cuban history, there were like three wars of independence in the 19th century, and they all started in the east. So he goes to the second city of Cuba, Santiago, in the far east of the country, and he gets about 100 followers together. And they train up in a farm outside uh, Santiago. Raul's with him at this stage. And they attack this garrison, a military garrison in Santiago. And the whole thing is a failure. Mm. A lot of his followers are captured, actually tortured quite brutally um, in jail and murdered by the army. He manages to escape with Raul into the mountains, and they're captured a couple of days later in the mountains, right? Which is like some of the fabled stories about Castro kind of begin around this period, because, uh, you know, very famously, he was found by this uh, platoon, which was led by an officer that was actually very enamored of Castro and kind of admired him. So... Uh, very whether you know i mean this may be apocryphal but i but it's kind of told very often in cuba that this officer um you know the 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 guys were about to shoot castro and they said no stop you can't kill ideas right so he doesn't he doesn't he captures him takes him alive now his orders were to get take him to the military garrison where castro would most likely have been tortured himself and probably killed, but he didn't. He handed him over to the police. So Castro was put in jail, and the police were holding him in jail. The Bishop of Santiago, who has some kind of distant relation to Fidel Castro, hears that Castro's captured and is in jail, and intercedes and says, you can't kill him. The bishop saved his life, sort of thing. And so he gets put on trial. And then he's put on trial. The trial is secret, but he defends himself in a speech, this very long speech. Which I was going to say a long speech, right? Yeah. Because it is Castro we're it's talking not, about. Uh, in terms of his kind of later speeches, it's not a record. I mean, you know. Because he goes on for like hours and hours and hours, typically. like He, he can do. I yeah. mean, I've sat through five hours, Ooh, on uh, and off. I did wander out and wander back in, which people tended to do. Drifted well, come out. on. That is just a recipe for hemorrhoids uh, right there. Sat through five <laughs> hours. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, and is I think his longest speech is 14 hours. 14? Oh. Yeah, there was a, there was a famous secret speech that was never, no one's ever seen. Just as well. Which actually made after the after the missile crisis. Right. And we only know about it because snippets of it have been released, but the rest of it is secret. It's called Castro's secret speech. And it was only to the top leadership of the Communist Party to debrief them after the missile crisis and really tell them what really went on and also to tell them the direction in which they were going. But it's kept secret because so much of it had to be secret because they criticized, I think, the Soviet Union very heavily during it. This is a note to myself to not sit next to him at a dinner party if such a thing were ever to occur. I know he's no longer with us to break bread with, but come on, 14 hours. That is not, that is way above and beyond a cocktail <laughs> story. I'm against that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Let's have some ads. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. 
Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. So he's in the slammer, and I'm interested in the fact that uh, Fidel divorced his wife Mirta from prison after he heard on the radio that she was working at the Ministry of the Interior, and he thereby announced her as bourgeois. <laughs> I don't know. About You're that. out. You're, You're new, out, babe. That's news to me. That's something you found in your research that I have no idea about. So I can't possibly comment on that. Well, I think uh, <laughs> it speaks volumes about his commitment to his politics. He <laughs> does sound, Steve, like he was something of a Lothario, though, throughout his life. He is renowned to have had affairs. He had an affair with Lisa Howard, the um, famous American TV journalist. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. That they, Shocking. Yeah, and she was actually a back channel for... I bet really? she was a back channel. <laughs> yeah, no, she, she carried information for the Kennedys. What? To Castro, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. 
That's documented in a book um, by two very good colleagues, uh, Peter Cornblue and William Leogrand, who did a book recently called Back Channel to Cuba, the secret uh, talks between the United States and Castro. And of course, throughout the whole of the period, there were secret um, kind of communications going on, which neither side revealed, you know. Yeah. And that book you know, details a lot of this. And one one of the people that tried to kill Castro was this woman, Maritza, who was a girlfriend that the CIA recruited to go back and... Oh, it's just the German and she, one. And she had this, this cyanide pill that was hidden in her cold cream and she was supposed uh. to drop it into his mouth while he was asleep. Oh. And she famously kind of recounted this moment when she'd gone to her cold cream and found that the pill had dissolved. Oh, don't smear that on your face. And, <laughs> and she said, I couldn't bring myself to drop a, glo- a glob of cold cream into his mouth. So I was standing there staring at my cold cream oh. and he woke up. Oh, my and gosh. And he said, they sent you to kill me, didn't they? <gasps> he knew. He knew. And, he knew. And, and he actually gave her his gun, which he had in his holster <gasps> over the bed, you know, and he, said, shoot me. Then. Nerves of steel. And she said, I can't do it. And he said, no, they'll never do it. So the, the way that he eventually comes to power, Steve, he seems like he has a, a dry run. Um, which doesn't work properly when he arrives on what's always described slightly confusingly as a yacht, um, which comes up in my head, Katie, something a little bit like a Duran Duran video, which I'm <laughs> sure it, it wasn't, Steve. No, it resembles like a, a, like a large pleasure cruiser. And this is the Grandma, is it? It's called the Grandma, yeah. The main thing is that this yacht was built to carry about 12, 14 people, and there were 87 of them on board. So it was very over, and it, of course it was stocked full of weapons and supplies and stuff. So it was very over overladen, and there was a storm, and the boat got sort of diverted. They got lost. They, you know, took them longer to arrive than they anticipated, and that delayed their landing. Now there was an uprising time to take place in Santiago with their landing to coincide but of course the uprising took place before they arrived and was put down so the leadership in uh, Santiago were captured and killed Um, and that actually uh, created a, a, a martyrdom there, which was very um, influential in, in in catapulting Castro to even greater popularity. Uh, of course, uh, the the uh, knowledge of where Castro was going to land then leaked out to uh, Batista, and so they uh, were expecting him to land. So they met fire as soon as they landed. Uh, on the western side of Cuba, and their their plan always was to, if they got attacked, was to kind of spread out and then meet up in the mountains, which is what what the survivors of the expedition did. And I mean, a handful of them. It is it is reputed in a kind of, again, this is possibly a apocryphal that there were twelve like dis- so, disciples. You know, right. like, there's something biblical about that figure, right? Uh, but among them was Raul and Che Guevara. Now, of course, Che Guevara joined this group in Mexico because, of course, going back to the story of the of the imprisonment, Castro became extremely popular in prison. And in order to court favor with the population, um, a petition that had been raised amongst the population to get an amnesty for the Moncada uh, uh, assailants uh, was kind of heeded by Batista and he allowed them 
to go free. And a number of them were released uh, first, uh, including Raul, and they all went to Mexico into exile. And then later, they met Che Guevara. And what about the mystique that surrounds Che Guevara? Of course, now we all know and love him from the T-shirts and his jaunty beret. But <laughs> at the time, did he also have sort of a, a little bit of a rock star glow about him in the way that Fidel did? Well, they were called the bearded ones, Ooh. Los Barbudos, because they Los Barbudos. The, well, because in the mountains they didn't have razors, right. so their beards grew and their hair grew. They didn't get get to see accidental the, chic. So it was accidental chic, and Barista they actually hipster chic. Of course, it was them <laughs> that actually started the trend for long hair amongst you know right young on. people in the sixties, yeah. right? Because they saw these people. Yeah, yeah, right. I okay, and they were very romanticized. You know, Herbert Matthews the New York Times columnist, but also, believe it or not, Errol Flynn. One what? of the last things that Errol Flynn did in his life. The Hollywood star, the Hollywood film throb. star, yes. actually went to the Sierra Maestra with a film crew and interviewed, yes, what? met Fidel Castro, and he made a TV program which extolled the virtues of this man and what a wonderful guy he was going to be for Cuba. He was... Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Castro had, and his followers had, actually an enormous amount of popularity in yeah. the United States. And you've got to remember that when Castro first took power in 1959, the mm. first thing he did was go to the United States, yeah. and he made a tour of the United States and he spoke at Yale and Harvard. He spoke to students. He was fated as being a hero. Well, he ha he went on an absolute charm offensive, which must have freaked out the Dulleses and Eisenhower. Um, but... You know, undoubtedly, Castro understood the power of the press and controlling the message. Obviously, he was very photogenic and he had that consistent look, you know, the fatigues and the beard. It's always and, Fidel. Yeah, it's always Fidel. Like, you, you know him from right down the street. You know him from close up. Incredible. There's yeah. also there's some amazing footage from that trip to the U.S. that you talk about, Steve. So he's going to speak at the U.N., he doesn't park himself in Manhattan. He goes and stays in Harlem. No, actually, what happened was he was thrown out of his hotel. Was he? Booked, Even better. And the people in Harlem, the Hotel Teresa people, phoned him up and said, you can stay here. Oh. And so they went to Harlem because that was the only place that would welcome him. So that actually then, of course, speaks to the fact that he had this connection with, you know, the black population in the United States. And, of course, he met Malcolm X... Yes. Uh, you know, he came to the he came to the the hotel to meet him, and of course, also there was a procession of other people that went up to Harlem. You know, like Khrushchev went to Harlem yeah. to meet him as well. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. such the scene, isn't it? Yeah. So he was had an affinity for the marginalized and the the under class and the downtrodden, and he totally understood how to build up his own mystique and his own impact. Sure. I mean, the guy's a great communicator, right? And he understands the way the media works, and he uses it to great advantage. You see, one of the things that, uh, going back to this idea about him emulating Marti, uh, it was, uh, you know, about um, uplifting the population. He was all, all the time trying to... Um, not just improve, yeah, people's living standards, but actually their sense of self-esteem, their confidence, their, you know, their, their capacity to reason. He was about, you know, broadening, uh, you know, he was an educator. Um, 
And the first thing that he did was, of course, a literacy campaign to teach people who couldn't read and write how to read and write because there was a very high level of illiteracy. So this is where, Casey, you seem to get the, the big Castro question is in that there's a lot of things that he appears to be doing for his native land which are admirable, like the emphasis on education and healthcare reform. And then you have the negative side of the equation, Steve, where he is ruthless with anyone who speaks against him. Anyone who dares stand up against what he's doing meets quite a sticky end. Well, a lot of them escape and go to America. This is the thing, is that um, there were executions after the revolution, maybe 100 to 350, something like that of people that were collaborators with Batista, who was particularly brutal as a dictator. Um, lots of people with scores to settle uh, with individuals in the regime that had, had been re you know, responsible for disappearing and murdering their children and brothers and sisters and stuff like that. But he actually put a stop to that when he realized that it was actually doing damage to the reputation of the revolution because people were filming the firing squads and then they were being shown on American television. And this was turning people off. So it's one of the reasons why he actually stepped in and put a stop to it and said, look, we can't be doing this. This is not what we're about. The ruthlessness, if you like, is, yes, a ruthless determination to achieve the goals and not be allowed to kind of lose sight of that and be prepared to do what is necessary. But it's not a kind of, uh, let's say, gratuitous cruelty or violence that he's using. So he is prepared to do the deed, as, as was actually Che Guevara, perhaps more than Fidel himself, in, in pursuit of the goal. But they kind of are not the sort of... Uh, malicious. Yeah, like not the Stalin sadistic types who were just killing for, I, for yeah. killing's sake. Yeah, not killing for killing's sake, but of course they were helped by the United States, ironically, because their enemies ran away and they could get to America and be safe. I'm interested in how Castro uh, is very deft in how he plays all the different nuances, including the fact that he's quite opportunistic politically. And he is very coy and cagey about, am I communist? I'm not really sure. I might be slightly communistic, but not the Soviet kind of communism. And yeah. because he's very aware that he doesn't want to alienate Big Brother there across 90 miles away, the U.S., because right. he could stand to benefit from support and aid, um, but also he is aware, much like Nasser is in Egypt around the same time, like he wants to play the big Cold War dinosaurs against each other. And of course, you have Eisenhower and his guys in Washington freaking out about potentially having a little launching pad so close to America that the Soviets can avail themselves yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how, I think there was almost a, a misunderstanding perhaps deliberate on the part of America about what Castro's intentions were because I get the idea that Castro like you say was just a bit more about let's lift up Cuba and I'm less concerned about what the labels are. There is this debate and it is kind of a moot point amongst historians about how communist Fidel was before. You know he said well actually I pretended I wasn't a communist because if I had declared myself to be a communist or a socialist at that time I wouldn't get any following. 
because there was this vicious anti-communism in Cuba, just like there was in the United States. It was the McCarthy period. And if I'd have you know, been labeled as a communist, it would have been fatal for me. So I had to be something else. Castro does actually benefit from not being labeled a communist because like going back to the speech this very famous speech called history will absolve me uh you know you can condemn me you can kill me it doesn't matter uh history will forgive me i was right you lot are wrong that sort of speech becomes a manifesto for a new movement that grows up around castro so castro leads the 26th of July movement, which is a movement named after the date on which he attacked that garrison. Now, this is a new political force in Cuba. At the time, there are already two forces that are kind of opposing Batista, the Communist Party itself and what's known as the Student Directorate, which is this organization of students who are kind of these guys in Havana that are, you know, actually almost assassinate Batista in 1957. If that had succeeded, um, then they might have actually taken over the country. And by, and by that time, Fidel was still in the mountains. He would have been a marginal figure because their leader would have become president for sure. Uh, and also the, the leader of the 26th of July movement um, in Santiago, a guy called Frank Pais, who is murdered as well, Fidel kind of becomes the figure that then becomes the sole person who becomes possibly the person to actually overthrow Batista. So he actually benefited actually from the death of people that were alternatives to him. And of course, at the same time, he was criticised by the Communist Party. The Communist Party accused him of being a bourgeois adventurist. Mm. And he, they didn't support actually Castro Although they were opposed to Batista, they didn't support Castro until 1958, till very late in the process. So Fidel takes power with the help of the Communist Party, but with this following of his own, you see. So his kind of political genius was to kind of manage to bring together the whole of the opposition to Batista into a single movement, which kind of coalesced around him for a while. Now then, when, when the revolution had triumphed, he had the problem then of consolidating his position. He had to govern the country. And how was he going to do that? Well, this is where the Communist Party comes in and says, well, we've got like 10,000 members who are all very disciplined and will carry out your orders so we could be very important to you and so fidel kind of brings the communist party in to take over ministries and stuff and administrative posts so that's when the communist influence begins and that's when the americans start to get very very nervous about castro because he's got these communists he goes to the united states in 59 and he tries to meet Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, don't forget, refuses to meet him. But he did meet Nixon, who is a vehement anti-communist. And Nixon like, was the vice president. He at was the vice time. president. Yes. And Nixon formed this opinion about Castro. Yes. He said he was naive about communism and a dangerous guy, and we should not actually deal with this guy. So they kind of decided that they, were, they needed to get rid of him. So there was a secret decision made to get rid of him. So that was the Bay of Pigs plan, right? Yeah, this is a strange one, Katie, isn't it? Because, you know, we're huge fans, obviously, of what Billy has done with this wonderful song. But weirdly, we get a Bay of Pigs invasion lyric. It comes quite late, almost as if Billy has got his chronology wrong. Well, maybe we need to just kind of... We just graze along, along graze, the Bay of Pigs. Just lick we? it lightly around the, the, the contours and then uh, 
delve into it later. But um, yes, what was, uh, just quickly, in a line or two, the Wikipedia version of what Bay of Pigs was? So the Eisenhower administration decides sometime in 1960, I think it's around March 1960, that they're going to get rid of Castro. And so they order the CIA to get rid of him. They get this team that overthrew our Benz in Guatemala together, a guy called Richard Bissell, who is like the head of the team. And they order them secretly to go about organizing the overthrow of Fidel Castro. And the order actually contains the order to keep it secret, and if it is found out, to deny that the president actually ordered it. So what do the CIA do? They recruit these people that have fled from Cuba, the actually the members of the bourgeoisie themselves, amongst the people that are in this brigade of Cubans they train up are the former owners of like businesses in Cuba, bankers and industrialists and plantation owners and their sons. They are actually, the bourgeoisie themselves are recruited to actually form a brigade to invade their own island. And the idea is that they would create the semblance of this being Cubans trying to liberate themselves from this evil dictator Castro and then the United States was going to go in and help them Castro at this time is still not a communist and the revolution is still not officially declared a socialist revolution when the Bay of Pigs actually happens which is in April 1961 on the day the first bombing raids take place Fidel takes the opportunity at that moment to declare the revolution to be communist or socialist. He sees the writing on the wall and he thinks, okay, the Americans are invading. In for a penny. Uh, so I guess we need our buddies in the Soviet Union to back us up. Bum, bum, bum. We come to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I also looked down our lyric list, Katie, and we've got you 2 in two yes. episodes' time. This is a tricky one for us, Katie, because yes. you could read you 2 in a couple of ways, couldn't you? How deep should we go into the Cuban Missile Crisis? Crisis, which obviously is brought to the attention of the American administration by U2 spy plane. Well, it is a tricky one. I mean, it's a, a situation whereby America is severely threatened because Khrushchev is quite keen to put some Soviet missiles on Cuban soil and point them straight to yeah. North America. But the thing that is a huge diss to Castro is that Eisenhower and Khrushchev just kind of hug it out between them without involving Castro. And I guess my question to Steve about this is, was this just a performative action between the superpowers just to kind of position themselves as, I'm bigger than you, no, I'm the boss of you? Or was there a sense that Castro was going to be aligning himself with the Soviet superpower? In a, in a sense, the Bay of Pigs' failure led to the missile crisis because it proved that the United States had this nefarious intention. So then Cuba becomes totally paranoid about the possibility of there being a proper full-blown invasion of the island. So in order to defend the island uh, from potential invasion, um, Castro becomes very um uh, let's say, enthusiastic about the idea of uh, having nuclear missiles. But interestingly, his position on it was that we were actually helping the Soviet Union. 
by doing this. Because at the time, of course, the United States had missiles, guess where, in Turkey, very close to the Soviet Union, which could hit Moscow. Um, and by giving the uh, Soviet Union the possibility of having missiles in Cuba, that balanced up the threat. So Fidel claims that actually what the Cubans were doing was 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 being some an act of solidarity with their socialists sister sure. government. Now, of course, it did also defend Cuba from the possibility of American invasion. Castro actually said to Khrushchev, "You should declare this and say we're doing it." And Khrushchev said, "No, no, no, we'll keep it secret." And Castro said, "Look, Cuba is a sovereign country." We are a sovereign government. If we decide we want missiles, we can have them. And there's nothing the United States can do about it in international law. They'd have to break international law to stop us. They'd have to invade. So you should just tell them flat out. Now, what's going on in the States, of course, is Congress. Don't forget, nothing happens. The president isn't all powerful, right? He's got to deal with Congress. Who is the head of the Senate at this time? The Senate leader, Republican, granddaddy of George W. Bush, father of George H. Bush, Prescott Bush Sr., who is a vehement, like their sons, you know, nationalist, anti-communist, Republican, who's railing all the time in Congress that the Russians are militarizing Cuba, that Cuba's going to be a threat, and what are you doing about it, Kennedy? And Kennedy goes and has these summit meetings with Gromyko and asks Gromyko flat out, are you putting missiles in Cuba? And Gromyko flatly lies and says, no, we're not. And Kennedy goes back to Congress and says, I've just had this summit meeting with Gromyko, and he told me that they're not putting missiles there, so this is just nonsense and then the proof is presented to him so he's got egg kind of not just over his face but completely covering his body right so he's looking really really weak here so this crisis comes out of really you know a configuration of, of coincidences and you know what we call conjunctures there was a point in the middle of the missile crisis where Castro wrote a letter to Khrushchev saying, if this comes to a real shooting war, don't hesitate, press the button, fire first, because, you know, don't give them the opportunity of winning it. You know, Khrushchev was horrified by this. And this is one of the reasons why the, the Soviets said, keep Castro out because he's a hothead, we can't trust him. Which also sort of goes to prove the point that Khrushchev was just doing this for show, just to be quite positional and to get an advantage over on the Americans, like he had no intention of actually starting World War III. No, well, of course, starting World War III, and let's face it, right now, you know, we're facing it again, is crazy because mutually assured destruction will happen. You know, the nuclear winter and the fallout will kill us all. So it's kind of lose-lose, right? Um, but the potential was there for this to actually happen. And we it came very close, of course. Um, and, of course, this year is the 60th anniversary of the crisis, as it happens. Um, and if I can plug it, we're, we're planning a conference at my university over the missile crisis uh, for October this year to commemorate the event. But anyway, Castro, of course, had five demands. And these demands were what he said should be the price the Americans have to pay for removing the missiles. If they want them gone, we want these five demands. And what were the five demands? You've got to stop trying to kill us. Seems fair. We want Guantanamo Bay back. End the embargo. Guarantee Cuba's security. Not one of the points was agreed between Khrushchev and Kennedy. 
The, the agreement was over removing the missiles from Turkey. Right. We'll remove the missiles from Cuba if you remove the missiles from Turkey. And none of the Cuban demands were even discussed. That made Castro very, very upset, which is why he had the 14-hour speech. I just wanted to throw in a personal connection, Tom and Steve, uh, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Actually, it happened in 1962, the year I was born. Um, and my dad was uh, Air Force colonel consulting the Pentagon on this. And he was a Soviet expert who was brought in to advise the powers that be about how likely it was that the Soviets would attack America. And he very breezily went in and said, it's not likely at all. And I'm off to play golf, guys. (laughs) Castro is a a huge figure in the 20th and the 21st century. And it feels like we've got loads of stuff we'd like to ask Steve. Totally. We're squeezing him like a lemon. We certainly are. And we're also conscious that we're running out of time. So I've got an idea to run past you two. So in our next verse, when we come across Bay of Pigs invasion, why don't we treat today Castro as part un and then Bay of Pigs invasion can be part de of our Castro exploration. So we will make this uh, not goodbye, but see you soon. Dr. Stephen Wilkinson, director of the International Institute for the Study of Cuba at the University of Buckingham. See you in 13 lyrics time. Thank you so much, guys. I've enjoyed it immensely. (laughs) Stephen Wilkinson made pretty strong case about Fidel Castro being a cool guy. Let's look at the style icons of the period, Katie, in the politician sense. So we've met Charles de Gaulle. Yeah. Rakish cap. um, Not a lot else going for him. Khrushchev, uh, who looks like, famously, a jagged potato. Yeah. Against those, Castro's got a pretty easy job. He is cutting a dash. Uh, He's got a strong look. And also, he's a smart guy. I like that he is attuned to the nuances, and we're going to find out more when Stephen comes back to talk about Bay of Pigs. Yeah, it's a weird one for me, this, Katie, because Billy's chronology seems a little bit shonky. However, he has worked so many wonders thus far, it seems unfair to criticise him. What else do we want to know about Castro, apart from assassination attempts? What else is on your mind for next time? Well, I want to get into the fact that, um, speaking of his sartorial stylings, in the 90s, apparently he swapped out... Uh, his combat boots for trainers because oh, yeah. he had foot problems. That will happen at so, a certain age. But, you know, it's cool because he's working kind of a proto-hip-hop look. <laughs> he certainly is. And, and then another detail is that he loved guns. He was a sharpshooter and apparently wore a Browning pistol at his waist. And he always had a Kalashnikov in an attache case nearby. Oh. If he wasn't cradling his Kalashnikov lovingly, at his belly, he would just have it disassembled in a suitcase. Always the revolutionary, Katie. Always. I like the fact as well that there seems to be a period in his life where he gets very interested in the artificial insemination of cows. Oh, you know, it happens to us all. You have to have a hobby in your <laughs> mid to late life, something just to take your mind off of work. That's the thing in a decadent West, Katie, men in their 40s might get into golf. Uh, they might start riding motorbikes or get a partner half their age. In the exhausted revolutionary world, you get really into the artificial insemination of bovines. Whatever gets you through the night. (laughs) Whatever. Whatever works. 
So we will see Stephen again soon. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return next week, have a cheeky little listen to Death of a Film Star. It's narrative storytelling at its most immersive slosh. The stories of the stars we lost too soon. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to hear theirs. So we have episodes about James Dean, who we've talked about, Katie, on this show, Judy Garland, and even, nice little tie-in to something Stephen mentioned earlier, heartthrob Errol Flynn, who, as we now know, spent time interviewing Fidel in his mountain retreat. My goodness, it wasn't enough for him to be a Hollywood swordsman. No, he was getting involved with counter-revolutionaries. Plus, our resident writer and master of the pen, Tom Fordyce, wrote some of them. Thank you, Katie. I couldn't have read that line myself. (laughs) If you would like to listen to it, search for Death of a Film Star in your favourite podcast app. And subscribe. And next week, the topic from Billy is Edsel is a no-go. Edsel is a what? Edsel. Edsel is a car. It's a make of, it's a vehicle that was a flop. It was a junker, flunker, clunker. I'm not massively excited, Katie, at this point. But the whole point of this podcast is that we take subjects that we might go, hmm, and by the end we're, ah. (laughs) We're like, eh, ah. I mean, I don't know if Edsel is a no-go is going to have anything on Studebaker, but it is certainly a car that was another flop. So Billy does have a certain amount of empathy for these doomed projects on four wheels. Yeah, floppy cars is next week. We shall see you then. Bye. <laughs> floppy cars. <laughs> Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.